I remember the strained lines in the face of the mother of two preteens. Her facial tension reflected the signs of a highly stressed parent, and so I anticipated the worst as I waited for her to find the words to explain her concerns. I was a good bit relieved when she finally was able to get it out, but by my show of relief, it only seemed to distress her all the more because she interpreted my lighthearted response to indicate that I obviously didn't take her concerns seriously, and she was right about that. But now she knew I was obviously not qualified to help her, and I surely did not properly appreciate the grave danger her children were being placed. What was the danger? They were being taught Greek mythology. Now granted that there are a number of reasons to be distressed over what our children may be exposed to in the government mind control complexes we used to call public school, but at the point in our history that we were then, nearly 30 years ago, I did not include Aesop's fables and the much-needed lessons of Narcissus or Pandora's box to be among them. But my own naive attempt to try to find some balance and some objectivity about this didn't just fail. I became her new enemy. The attempt on my part to explain the value of image and symbol in literature, mythology included, didn't help. I tried to explain examples of how literary imagination and symbolism were needed in very normal human ingredients in the formation of a well-rounded and balanced education. I observed with slightly detached fascination as her widening eyes went from a seething level of controlled outrage to an open display of emergency panic. In the few seconds it took for me to use the forbidden words imagination and narnia, I had inadvertently and fully confirmed to this troubled lady what she had suspected the moment I didn't share her original troubled condition. By invoking those catchphrases, I was revealing <clears throat> that I too was part of the demonic conspiracy to seduce her children into outright Satanism. She arose from out of her up till then weak and frightened position to her full stature as a defender of the faith and informed me in rising tones of prophetic zeal that no child of hers would be reading any such books because they had witches in them. I should not try to make light of this because it really wasn't funny, but sad. I only tell it a bit lightly because it was so painful and painful to relate. I would have done no good to try to remind her that based on her criteria, we would not be able to read 1 Samuel, the book of Acts, or the book of Revelation. It was amazing to me how quickly she went from disturbed and needy parent to dogmatic protector of the realm. My heart ached for her, for her children, and most of all for the Bible Belt ignorance that had so deprived her and scores like her of both wisdom and joy, replacing them with superstition and fear. That was nearly 30 years ago. Now there's an entire fleet of self-ordained heresy hunters floating down the Ganges River of the World Wide Web. They are on a mission for God. To quote the lyrics of a great Petra song from the 1980s, they are looking for evil wherever they can find it. Off on a tangent, hope the Lord don't mind it, they're on another witch hunt. It would be self-incriminating to tell you how much time I've spent and what I've learned from these websites. Incriminating because I would have to explain how it was that I wasted the time I did in order to calculate how much time they had had to waste in order to produce the sheer volume of material on these websites. 
These are well-meaning but misguided people who spend their energies building sites that are set apart for the singular purpose of slandering numbers of ministers by name, offering reams and reams of researched and reproduced evidence, which I guess they intend one day to offer in some heresy trial that, who knows, might lead to the public execution of their subject. No one is ever merely a brother whom the witch hunter considers to be off into error in some area. No, he or she has to be dubbed false prophet. And we all know what needs to happen to them there, false prophets. Or they are puppets of the Illuminati or plants by the New World Order or forerunners of the Antichrist. Now, never mind that there certainly are real such villains, but those who confess Christ as their Lord and Savior and who manifestly show evidence of Christ-likeness in other areas of their life are not among them. But in order to win the electronic argument, the worst possible light has to be cast on them. If they speak in tongues, it's because they are devils. If they don't speak in tongues, it's because they are devils. If they had a photo taken with Mother Teresa, they were dupes of the Vatican. If they were on the same platform with Benny Hinn, they are charismatic witches. Billy Graham is really a Masonic Lodge puppet, and don't believe for one minute that Pat Boone is really a Christian. He sang rock and roll. In some ways, this is merely our current-day version of the iconoclastic furor of the Reformation, when every image, symbol, stained glass window, statue, or painting was destroyed in the name of purging the church of idols. And yes, some of those things were idols and needed purging, but not everything. These people would have burned down the tabernacle of Moses and destroyed Solomon's temple if they'd had access to them. It's always very dangerous when we become more holy than God. But if any of us take too much time monitoring or critiquing such stuff, we become guilty of the same thing we're critiquing, don't we? The witch hunters, the iconoclasts, the inquisitors, the Pharisees are ever among us. And that is because we all have our own version of it lurking in our own hearts. I tend to want to do to them what they are doing to others, so I become like them. I'm sure someone here may be able to find some hot button of mine and push it so you can watch my own inquisitorial brow cloud up. I hope not but I'm not so sure that I'm not still capable of it. Why? Because we absolutely have to be discerning. It is a time of real weird spiritual mixture, and in the face of so much deception, it's more necessary than ever that we not be gullible in the name of being nice, but like people who become vigilantes in the face of lawlessness and end up shooting all the wrong people or executing someone just for walking across the grass, Spiritual vigilantism is run amok in some circles. Jesus said, we must be wise as serpents, meaning we must not think like serpents, but be able to discern the works of the serpent. Yet we must also at the same time be harmless as doves. We must not treat anyone if they, as if they are beyond the love and grace of God. And we must for sure be harmless. We must not wish anyone harm like we first learned in kindergarten. Do not hit. Do not spit on. Do not push or bite. Do not burn at the stake. In the context of this current study, we have to shine a light on the witch hunt mentality because it has Catholic and Protestant and Orthodox and Charismatic versions. And Lord help us when they are denominationally aimed at each other. 
I will try to insult each one at least once during the lecture, for fairness sake. If I accidentally skip your particular group or your pet peeve, I apologize in advance. See, our legalism is a way of protecting our territory. They are not of us. They don't do it like us. If we can find a scriptural way to destroy such people, we will. And that's all the better for the pure faith. And no area of faith seems to awaken the witch hunters more than does music and the arts. I cringe when I read now and then of some Christian who nitpicks a history or a song to death because it didn't fit their narrow definition of what is scriptural. But... I equally cringe in the opposite direction when I read some Christian giving four-star support to something that should be clearly rejected. We cannot live with either pinheaded legalism or empty-headed license. Of course, then, that obviously implies that you lucky folks are here in the correct place hearing the absolute accurate truth from me. Well, if you'll relieve me of having to sit in that place, I'll try to relieve you of handing down my own version of absolute perfect truth as I see it. If I was here to preach the gospel, I would not be nearly so careful to honor other points of view. But if we are here to hopefully learn from each other and gain Holy Spirit-inspired help in developing godly and effective art forms, then I need to be a little more humble. So let's relax and take a deep breath and ask God for his grace as we try to explore some exciting but dangerous territory. I'm a storyteller who has just barely enough music education to use as a backdrop and prop for my storytelling. And I had in my head a thousand issues regarding the power of music for good and for ill, but as I began to actually prepare these lectures, they seemed to have a mind of their own and have moved more into the study of storytelling as the central art form under scrutiny. I hope that guidance is from the Lord, even though I have already confessed my own tendency is toward the story even more than music. All the art forms are directly related, and so much of what we talk about will relate to all of them to some degree. And music, in some ways, is probably arguably the most powerful form and holds sway over our culture more effectively than any other. And I would welcome the chance to address music just by itself. For since it is so demanding, it can never be given its proper due in a context with other disciplines. We are soaked and drowning in music like no generation in history, and that's why it's too large to address here. But we're also the generation of the screen, No art form is left out when it comes to making movies. In film, the story itself is brought to life with every other artistic discipline at its service. The powerful effect of story plus photography plus music plus, in some cases, dance, painting, even sculpture can be a blitzkrieg on the senses, again, for good or for ill. But what about when it's both? What goes on in us when the overarching good subterfuges with real, though maybe secondary, themes that are bad. Or, let's turn it around, what happens when a really bad story has elements of real goodness, beauty, and truth in it, whether by accident or on purpose? And does it make a difference whether the good was accidental or on purpose? We're definitely biting off more than we can chew here.
but I still want to try because I think it is of vital importance that we learn to discern the nuances in order to distinguish the light from the dark and not to be taken in by murky, foggy mixtures, for it is the mixture of light and dark which creates not only interesting shadows, but also dangerous fog. Fog is much more treacherous to pass through than sheer darkness. Paul, the apostle, uses a phrase in his second letter to the Corinthians, chapter 11, which he didn't seem to need to expound on. It was evidently a known fact to his audience. He begins the chapter talking about how Eve was deceived by the serpent. Then in verse 14, he makes what seems to be an understood statement that, quote, even Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. What did his original audience understand when we seem not to quite get that? The word nephesh in Hebrew is more than serpent. It is the root word for several families of ideas, but basically it refers to that which shines brightly, brazen, like shining brass. Eve would not have been surprised then that what came at her was more than a mere snake. The being who approached her, standing upright and speaking, was a shining one, brazenly coming at her in his radiance to give her information God had deprived from her. And that has not changed in thousands of years of our history. He still comes with a bright and shining lie and brazenly seeks to seduce by alternative information or more to the point, to help us decide for ourselves how we want reality to be. The vital phrase to focus on here, that we decide for ourselves what is good and what is evil. For that becomes the unfolding history of man's entire philosophy. We will decide for ourselves. And the end result will be that we turn existence totally upside down we will end up calling evil good and good evil. And what area or activity has more capacity to recreate according to our own will as the arts? We either bow to the Creator and co-create with Him to give honor to Him, or we decide, like Lucifer, to build an alternate reality in our own name. Now, the battle against the gospel has been from early on, not waged as successfully from without as from within. Referring back to our witch hunter issue, false prophets are dangerous. Mixing the truth of God with a lie is the anatomy of temptation, and false prophets and teachers don't come at their victims with sheer unadulterated open lies, but mixture. Bread is good, but turn these stones into bread. God has promised to give his angels charge over you to keep you, so cast yourself down from this high place and see. God is love, so love your neighbor's wife. The mixing, the twisting, is the stuff of powerful temptation. The outright urge to do an evil act is usually not so strong. Kill? No, hate first, then rationalize, then convince yourself of your superior position. And by the time you actually kill, you think you're doing God a service. So much more delicious than mere passionate violence. Killing, that's only one evil. 
The more progressive way is to first incite negative feelings, then self-deceiving rationale, then evil imaginings, then bloodlust fantasy, and top it all off with self-gratifying prideful rage, and finally it all results in death all around. So much more fruitful for a harvest of hell than mere killing by itself. And if you can actually mix all this manifest evil with something to do with God, a religious form of the poison, you have not only killed and maimed, but you have managed to slander and blaspheme God in the process. A certain current world religion comes to mind for some reason. The Gnostic lie was fully formed within the life of the church by about 200 AD, though its earlier forms were working their way into the very fabric of certain parts of the church from the beginning. It's not in our present purpose to give a full history of Gnosticism, but if you're unfamiliar with the term, it means to know and implies a spiritual superiority of those who know the secret information not revealed to the rabble, the uninitiated. It is occult, hidden, and revealed only to the adepts. Its basic argument was always against the incarnate God, who saved men by his sacrificial death on the cross and rose bodily from the dead, is ruling from the throne of heaven, and will return to this physical earth to redeem and reclaim it. All forms of Gnostic heresy, and there are many, many forms, have this root foundation in common. God and man are not united in Christ, and the physical and the spiritual can never be reconciled. All spirit is good, all matter is bad. One school of thought said all matter is evil, so you cannot marry, eat food, and enjoy it, or anything else, and be spiritual. The other school of thought agreed that matter was evil, and therefore so was the body, but the logic went. Since the body is of no use and will eventually be done away, do whatever you like with it, and do all you like with it. It will be cast off when you're finally spiritual. Both lines are in opposition to all God intends for man. What we believe about either of these errors will decide how we live. If we are anti-humanity in the name of spirituality, we will be legalistic, dour, self-harming, and harmful to others. Love can have no place. On the other end, if we believe what we do with and or to our body or others' bodies has no meaning in the spirit realm, we will abuse it and the bodies and lives of all others. We desire to injure or to use. Love, again, can have no place. The demonic alternative to the purpose of God is not love, but the will to power. Denying the flesh for the sake of power is not godlier than using creation for others' own indulgence. Either one is anti-love, therefore anti-God. A dark anti-life world, more rooted in Greek philosophy than Holy Scripture, is asceticism the tendency to focus on the death side of Christianity without a resurrection. The following scriptures have no place in any hyper-ascetic practice. 1 Timothy 6.17, God gives us all things to enjoy. 1 Corinthians 4, all things are yours. Colossians 2.16, let no one judge you in what you eat or drink. Hebrews 13.4, marriage is to be honorable and honored by all. Because such hatred of the human, the body, the soul, our humanity, has nothing to do with loving God or obeying Him or loving others, it is a Gnostic lie. 
It's a Greek-rooted paganism informed by the demonic rather than the holy, for it seeks to ruin what God intended as human. Notice Paul's words. Let no one disqualify you by insisting on ascetic practices and the worship of angels, taking their stand on visions they have seen puffed up in their fleshly mind, not holding fast to the head, which is Christ. Since you have died with Christ to the elemental spirits of the world, why would you go back under the world's rules? Don't touch, don't taste, don't handle. Such regulations may have the appearance of wisdom in self-made religion, asceticism, and harsh treatment of the body, but has no value in restraining selfish indulgence. Colossians 2, 18-23. He warns that this will only get worse toward the end. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, he says, Now the Spirit warns explicitly that in the last days some will depart from the true faith and follow after deceiving spirits, teachings taught by demons, forbidding to marry, and abstaining from certain foods which God created to be received with joy and thanksgiving, for everything God creates is good and to be enjoyed. Notice that it is the elemental spirits which are behind this false humility. The worship of angels was a false humility that denied their invitation to be united directly to Christ. They were oh so humble. Their invitation to be in relation to God was laid aside and they went after principalities and powers instead. This anti-humanity produces a kind of religion which paves the way for its opposite, fleshly lawlessness. The enemy is pleased if we fall into either ditch, ascetic hatred of the human or licentious love of the fleshly. Both deny love and therefore are anti-life and anti-Christ. The true balance is in the childlike humility of loving God and each other and all things which God has given to enjoy in the earth. And our art should be guided by this truth. Our humanity is ultimately God's highest created order. Childlikeness, pure romance, parental care, simplicity, warm friendship, earthiness, hobbit-likeness. The satanic hates these things, seemingly because they are humble. They are not full of sound and fury, but small, gentle, dependent. And God loves them so much he became a baby through the womb of a woman married to a man who lived in the most simple of circumstances and spent the first 30 years of his earthly life working with his hands in a local mom-and-pop shop. Asceticism, the hatred of the human, sets the stage for its opposite, as I previously stated, licentiousness. Paul said he learned how to both abound and to do without because his life was not measured by either position. He could enjoy the abundance of all things and equally endure the deprivations of warfare when the situation demanded it. This is real spirituality. Philippians 4, 11 and 12, I have learned to be content in every circumstance. I know how to get along with humble means and I know how to enjoy prosperity. To be empty or to be full, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Ephesians four seventeen through 19, do not any longer behave like the pagans in the futility of their minds their foolish hearts darkened excluded from the life of God because of the willful ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their heart because they are no longer able to feel they are then given over to unbridled sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness 
So their foolish heart becomes darkened because they are unable to feel they are given over to unbridled sensuality. The response to overcoming unbridled sensuality is feeling the right feelings. And for a better presentation of this statement I just made about feelings, please seek out my lecture on Nightlight in our Nightlight archives on our website entitled Men Without Chests. So we have asceticism, which denies the human. We have licentiousness, which devours the human. That Those two eventually lead to a third philosophy, which the arts are subject to being seduced by, and that is nihilism. The destruction of life. Post-World War II storytelling came under the shadow of the war, the Holocaust, and the bomb. If Frank Capra's hero, George Bailey, learned that he had had a wonderful life, these happy morality tales would soon be supplanted by darker stories. The sordid, the criminal, and the base began to take over. Even the kids were included as the Saturday afternoon movie houses were filled with movies about how the bomb set in motion aberrations that would eventually eat us all. Giant spiders, giant ants, giant lizards. Films became darker and darker. A wonderful life was replaced by a tentative and eventual hopeless life. The goodness of human existence was being threatened by a philosophy of doom. Doom cries for life via licentiousness. But even the increased licentiousness of the 60s and 70s, for the most part, still had a certain base humanity in its mix. Humanity hating demonic sexual evil had been lurking in the shadows off and on for as long as man's fallen history is recorded. Still, it has always had limits it could not cross, even among the ancient pagans. When Venus began to be endangered by Dionysus, laws were passed to reject the over-the-top danger of the wild Dionysian cult. Our Venus worship of the late 40s, 50s, and early 60s became confronted again with Dionysius in more subtle, covert ways here and there in film and music. But by the late 70s, and certainly into the 80s, this more accurate identity of the demonic began to show itself unfettered. Unlike the wiser pagans of Greece, we didn't draw any lines. Something began to occur in the 1980s that has taken us far beyond previous godlessness. A new combining of the visual with the musical invoked a new degree of evil like never before. And it was pumped directly into millions of homes and into millions of children's psyches. The modern godless celebration of the flesh might be seen as paralleling the Greco-Roman worship of Eros and Venus, which still centered in romantic, erotic pleasure with limits. But the more godless and hopeless the future appeared, the more excessive became the carnality. So like the ancient worship of Pan and Dionysius also edged out the previous more tame eroticism of Venus, so our own culture began to give way to the same change. We began to move from Venus to Dionysus, or more literally, to Baal. And finally, Moloch, the other face of Baal. Sexual orgy to blood orgy, lust to death, libido to mortido, manifested in ravenous excesses with no limits. 
Now, God judged Israel for the golden calf, but nothing had equaled the wrath released in a place called Baal Peor in Numbers 25. This is the place where human will totally embraces demonic horror with a reckless abandon beyond insanity and is damned. The gross repugnance of this level of evil did not burst in upon us suddenly, for if it had, we would have wretched and vomited it out. But it has slowly seeped into the corporate psyche so that it has made us like the people of the days of Jeremiah, who no longer even have the capacity to blush. Jeremiah six fifteen eight twelve. Once a people reach this point, some form of remedial judgment is the only possible hope or result. Beyond that, the only judgment left is fumigation. As stated previously, we cannot offer any remedy for evil if we are partaking in it. We cannot see clearly if we are living in fog. We must thoroughly understand this seductive danger, which artistically sensitive people are particularly vulnerable to, so that we are wise as serpents and harmless as doves. Even the Greek pagans, as I said, had their limits. The cult of Dionysus reveled in every kind of debauchery, including cannibalism, and the Greeks saw where that was leading to the eventual overthrow of their ability to even exist. So it was eventually outlawed, though, like all such evil, it never fully disappeared. Paul was not directly referring necessarily to Dionysian activity when he says in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 11 through 13, have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather even reprove them, for it is a shame to even speak of those things done in secret. We in Western culture are not so wise as the pagan Greeks were. Whether offered in horror films directly like Silence of the Lambs, an Academy Award winner, or more subtly as comedy like Seinfeld or Friends or Sex in the City, the message is there, the same message. And that is that there is no meaning and therefore no message. Sexual cannibalism is fully present graphically in lambs and with a snarky snicker in comedies. It is amazing how much time, energy, and ink is spent telling us in so many different anti-art art forms that there is no meaning in anything. But it is a multi-million dollar industry to keep telling us. Meaninglessness, no matter how funny it may be, and sometimes it is very funny, is an attack on meaning and therefore an attack on God. While our mouths are open with laughter, more poison pours down our throats. Examples of this absurdness are myriad. Many of us didn't notice we'd been successfully acclimatized. Paul's command is to refuse fellowship with such people, which I would expect includes refusing to buy a ticket for their films or to support anything they do. But it goes strongly beyond just merely refraining from participation with them and includes directly engaging the subject with strong rebuke. The Greek here that Paul uses when he says, don't engage in works of darkness, but rather reprove them, is a proactive and high-energy engagement in opposition to. The idea is not to just say this is bad and we'll leave it alone, but this is very bad, it's life-destroying, here's why, and here's the alternative. This calls for godly art. In times past, the church made some very unwise mistakes in calling things bad and then trying to get legislation 
to force conformity to a shallow moral cosmetic facade. The results are varied. Of course, some legislation is vital for cultural survival. The silly phrase that you, quote, can't legislate morality is stupid on its face. All legislation is the legislation of some moral code of someone's. But the church in America has not done a wise job of addressing cultural rot. We simply wanted it kept out of our sight and not allowed to invade our white picket fence domain. Sadly, that means that for some, they could slip out of the white picket fence now and then and visit all the immoral rot they railed against when no one was watching. This moral weakness among us left us trying to manage sin instead of manifest life. It had some disastrous outcomes. Take, just for one instance, the tragedy that was prohibition. Paul didn't say, call bad stuff bad, then pass laws to contain it. He said, rebuke, then reprove by word and lifestyle. He closes this exhortation with these words, Ephesians 5.13. Everything, when it is reproved, is made manifest by the light. For whatever makes manifest becomes light. Maybe some alternative translations will help you get that better. The NIV says everything that is exposed by the light becomes visible for what it really is. Then that becomes light. The Living Bible says their evil intentions will be exposed when the light shines on them. Weymouth says whatever is tested by light shows its true colors. I like that one. For only that which shines of itself is light. That's really good. Whatever is tested by the light shows its true colors, for only that which shines of itself is real light. Or the message, rip the cover off those frauds and see how they look in the light of Christ. Rip the cover off is much closer to the Greek idea that Paul was referring to when he said reprove the works of darkness. It would take some prolonged dialogue to come to some wise battle plans for how to accomplish this. That's what we're here for. But it needs to be done more and better than we've done it. It cannot be that all we can do is complain about how unbelievably bad badness is, then offer very weak Christian commentary about it. We are truly bottomless in our capacity to do evil as fallen human beings. As Malcolm Muggeridge said, no Christian doctrine is more empirically provable than the doctrine of original sin. Paul seems to demand that we manifest life in such a way that rips the cover off the evil like dragging a vampire into the sunlight. Rip the cover off those frauds and see how they look in the light of Christ. This brings us to what I consider the most important and demanding part of this message. We don't need too much guidance to discern the obvious stench of rotted fish and maggots. Even a pagan with normal human sensibilities would wretch. Still, when shoved in our face, putrid evil is sickening, but not as dangerous, because we reject it. What is dangerous is not the openly devilish, but the mixture. A spoonful of sugar helps the arsenic go down. And the mixture of light and dark has put us in that moral fog that I referred to previously. It's harder to navigate in fog. We've been driving through it ever since the close of the 1960s. The change was abrupt. Then a slow seduction began. The 1964 Oscar went to My Fair Lady. 1965, The Sound of Music. 1966, A Man for All Seasons. But by 1969, after film nominees like The Graduate and Bonnie and Clyde had helped move the focus considerably down, it was only one year later, 
1969 that Hollywood managed to award their first Oscar to what was then an X-rated film about a male prostitute called Midnight Cowboy. Only a willful desire to descend that far that fast could account for the highest honor to finally go to the lowest level. There was enough heat from the general public that uninformed, ignorant rabble, you know, in flyover country who cannot access the high and lofty hidden wisdom of the enlightened Hollywood adepts that those in the driver's seat of the storytelling factory saw their need to back off a bit. It is estimated that some 17 million people dropped out of the movie-going population in 1969 due to Midnight Cowboy, making family outings to the movies a diminishing American event. In 1970, we opened with Patton as best picture, a tip to the still strong white Anglo-Saxon Protestant center of America, but even there the language became more polluted than before. Many other films with ample, increasingly muddy fare were mixed in. Not Oscar winners, but big pictures. By 1973, it was possible to do something unparalleled. A graphic, intensely dark film about demon possession, which was bad enough, but with a focus on the impotence of the Catholic Church in the face of such evil. There were documented reports of many true demonic events occurring during the filming of The Exorcist. This also resonated with many theaters around the country where interior decor had to be completely replaced due to the numbers of people who vomited while watching. This was a testimony to the health of a society which reacted to being force-fed poison they'd never had to ingest before and to which they were unable to incorporate into their psyches. But soon... It would become easier for us to swallow. And the powers behind the powers, taking five steps forward and two steps back, ten steps forward and three steps back, eased away from the manifestly devilish, satisfied that they had gained. Now into the soul of America and the West, raw demonic evil was now ensconced into the fabric of the culture with the release of The Exorcist. Five Academy Awards said so. It would take a while for its fruit to ripen, but by the late 1980s, there would be dozens, scores of such evil. It's my personal belief, by the way, that the demonic beings offered in these films channeled their presence and appearance to and through the filmmakers so that their filmmaking is simply providing a portal for one dimension into another. And those who sit in a darkened hall passively submitting to these occult sacraments take this evil in all to their detriment, some to the point of possession. And yes, that is obviously bad. But still, the subtle, attractive, well-written, entertaining mixture is still more dangerous. Remember, the ugly evil we retch against, but we swallow the mix. Let's take a look at this mix. The summer of 1977, I was working with a band on a five-week tour. We had one day off in three weeks and were anxious not to waste that day off. As we scoured the Orlando movie page, the only item that looked like a possibility was a small bottom left-hand ad for a film called Star Wars. We took the chance that we were about to misuse our only day off by sitting in a movie theater watching toy images robotically move around on a screen full of people whose mouths wouldn't match the soundtrack and wishing we had played goofy golf instead. We were wrong. 
I can still re-experience that opening scene of the Imperial Destroyer as it swiftly glided over our heads so realistically that everyone in the theater, there were only a few others besides us, maybe seven, found ourselves ducking our heads a bit as it filled the screen. I can still hear the London Symphony playing John Williams as it filled our ears and still, silly as it may sound, feel the sense of magical boy-like wonder as it filled our imaginations with a sense of awe. None of us had ever experienced anything like this before. For those under the age of 40 who have grown up with a barrage of high-tech special effects and who therefore find my description of our Star Wars experience a bit laughable and even quaint, I might suggest that it is not our generation that has been shorted, but yours. We had not yet been so glutted with overdone computerized visual excess so as to be unable to be impressed. And being impressed was a great experience for the $1.50 tickets we'd just invested in. You may even envy us rather than chuckle at us if you could ever experience anything that might stimulate your childlike exhilaration half as much as we felt that day. At the same time, as my pre-adolescent brain was catching fire, my older, more wisely informed heart was speaking discretion. I had just completed my first of many studious readings of the Screwtape Letters. As Darth Vader made his soon-to-be legendary and iconic appearance... These words came to my mind. The materialist magician. From chapter 7 of Screwtape, Lewis wrote, I wonder you should ask me whether it is essential to keep the patient in ignorance of your own existence. That question, at least for the present phase of the struggle, has been answered by the high command. Our policy for the moment is to conceal ourselves. Of course, this has not always been so, so we are really faced with a cruel dilemma. When the humans disbelieve in our existence, we lose all the pleasing results of direct terrorism, and we make no magicians. On the other hand, when they believe in us, we cannot make them materialists and skeptics. At least not yet. I have great hopes that we shall learn in due time how to emotionalize and mythologize their science to such an extent that what is, in effect, a belief in us, though not under that name, will creep in while the human mind remains closed to believing in the enemy. The life force, worship of sex, and some aspects of psychoanalysis may here prove useful. If once we can produce our perfect work, the materialist magician... The man, not using but veritably worshipping what he vaguely calls forces, or in our present case, the force, while denying the existence of spirits, then the end of the war will be in sight. Just as the exorcist had a few years previously opened the portal for the fully demonic, planting into the corporate psyche the image of pure evil, Now Darth Vader comes, and he is thankfully not so evil. He's bad, yes, but he's not super bad. He's a mixture, and really an acceptable one. He's scientific, a cyborg, part man, bigger part machine, but with something called the force working through him. So whatever this magical power is that Vader wields, it is all part of an acceptable non-spiritual mythology we can all get behind. Screwtape's materialist magician had arrived. Though I bow 
to the fact that I'm expressing my own subjective feelings, I cannot help but say that this was at this moment, I felt, a turning of the tide. Screwtape had said when he saw the materialist magician arrive, it would be the beginning of the end. And I believe that I can mark this moment as the beginning of the battle that we're in now. It was there that the entrance of forces flowed into Western film and storytelling culture, and I knew that would take us into the highly attractive yet dangerous direction that we've been in for the last 30-plus years. I want to try in the time that we have left to examine briefly how that has worked out so far. Carl Jung has been called the John the Baptist of the New Age movement, with good reason. Jungian psychology is far too complicated to offer a thorough explanation here, but at risk of being simplistic, it's far more a spiritist philosophy or occult alchemy than a branch of traditional psychology. He uses terms like conjunction, which refers to the marriage of the transcendence of spiritual opposites. That high-sounding verbiage, to speak more plainly, stands for the mixing of good and evil. The authority for such mixing came from the ancient satanic philosophy of the garden. You shall decide for yourself what is good and evil. And goes even further when it decrees that Jung and all who adhere to his views are above good and evil and therefore can easily decide how to mix them. That there is good fruit in some forms of Jungian therapy is not enough of a recommendation to disregard the clear occult satanic elements from which it emerged. That would be sort of like petting a rattlesnake because its venom has been useful in forming certain medicines. The understudy of Jung, who became his voice to America and then transmitted his influence of Jungian occultism into Western arts, was Joseph Campbell. George Lucas gives Campbell credit for a great deal of the philosophy of Star Wars, especially the spirituality in it. What sort of spirituality would that be? Well, we all have some degree of experience in resonating with certain spiritual truths from Star Wars. Don't give in to the dark side. Hate will open you to the dark side. And on a shallow Saturday afternoon matinee level, this might be useful to illustrate some Christian truth regarding our choices for good against evil. But in the long term, what are Jung, Campbell, and Lucas communicating? That the universe is a vast mystery energized by an impersonal, all-encompassing force. It is not a moral universe ruled by a loving, holy, personal creator, but a Buddhist cosmos of yin and yang. There is no ultimate good or evil and no need for a savior. Religious illusions are useful tools to tell the story, but there's no final authoritative revelation to adhere to in the telling. Campbell writes in his four-volume study of the world religions called The Masks of God, It is clear that whether accurate or not as concerning biographical detail, The moving legend of the crucified and risen Christ was fit to bring a new warmth, immediacy, and humanity to the old motifs of the beloved Tammuz, Adonis, and Osiris myths. Do you notice Jesus is a legend, but pagan gods are beloved? He said that, quote, Every religion is true one way or another. It is true metaphorically. But when it gets stuck in its own metaphors, interpreting them as facts, then you are in trouble. I propose that this philosophy and the art forms it inspires is far more dangerous than the green vomit of the exorcist. Why? 
Because as dark and repulsive as the exorcist is, it still maintains a clear biblical worldview. Its attacks on authority is not against the Lord, but against the weak faithlessness of the church system. But still there is a true light, though weak, and a true dark, though far too strong, in the exorcist. In Campbell and in Star Wars, we have the beginning in super-energized pop culture art forms, the rejection of the biblical cosmos, the embracing of the Eastern Buddhist Hindu occult cosmos, and the self-determination which comes from our sovereign choices as we engage impersonal forces to aid us. In 1977, sitting in the Orlando, Florida movie theater, I was not ignorant of the spiritual dangers before me. Yet in spite of knowing the mixture, still I was gripped in my imagination, stirred in my soul. I was emotionally moved, not to compromise my faith, but I was tempted to tolerate its dishonor, all because of becoming aware of a huge hunger inside of myself as I was watching. That was the hunger in me for story. Not just any story, but one which called to me and offered me a sense of transcendent purpose and destiny for good. Now you might rightly say, but that was given to you already in the gospel. Why isn't that enough? It is enough when communicated on both the heart and the mind level. But it is not enough if only offered to the intellect in a one or two dimensional set of dogmas and rules through pulpits and through church life. Western Christian thought in its iconoclastic zeal for intellectual truth only has so neglected the heart that when myth, even a mixed neo-pagan one, was communicated carrying some degree of truth in it, the starving heart of the Christian audience ate it whole, me included. In our next session, we will examine the hunger for story and how the current mythological engine has been cranking out a product that not only doesn't truly meet that hunger very well, but offers a poisonous mixture that has been slowly sapping our strength and confusing our discernment and what we can do to recover the needed stories without the dangerous mixture.